1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of getting in a college coach conversation. I'm your host today. I'm Ian Fisher, and I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon, where the crocuses are out and the daffodils are on the way. And we feel like spring might be right around the corner. Uh, Joining me for today is my colleague also in Portland, uh, Christine Sawicki. Hey, Christine, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Ian. Thanks for welcoming me. Uh, definitely enjoying the crocuses right now. Yeah,
1: they're really, really nice. Um, so we are—we've got a great show for today. And my sort of feel on this is we're going to keep it super casual because I think that in this particular segment we're just going to have a little bit of a conversation on our chosen topic, and I'll get to that in a moment. We're also going to address listener Q and A. A little bit later on in the show today with some of your questions about college admissions and college finance. So you won't want to miss that. But I'm generally kind of taking it easy today. We're going to throw a little conversation back and forth between Christine and me and then me and Shannon when she uh, joins us a little bit later on. So Christine, our ostensible topic for today is how do you become a better writer? Now, I don't think either of the two of us is an expert in that particular space, it's hard to be a really good writer. But as it pertains to the college application process, obviously essays are really important. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with juniors who are right now, I don't know about you, but my juniors are really starting to actively think about what the application process is going to look like. They're, they're starting to imagine the application as a tangible thing with their content in it. What sorts of questions are you getting from current juniors that pertain to the college essay?
2: Yeah. I think right now it's, as you said, just trying to get an understanding of what to expect from the process um, and thinking also about the timeline of when when does this start and what is it going to look like. Um, so I'm doing a lot of introductory conversations in terms of how does the personal essay connect with supplemental essays, applications that don't have a personal essay. What do essays look like in that space? Um, and helping students uh, find, I guess, a little bit of a calmness or a sense of control in knowing when to start the various pieces, uh, mm-hmm. so that they have a maximum amount of time to maneuver through the at times, very large amounts of writing, depending upon the list of the particular student.
1: I was doing a a workshop just yesterday and over the webinar talked about the essay as being among my favorite parts of the application, Mm -hmm. sometimes my students least favorite parts of the application, but also I think the only piece of the app that is created solely for the sake of the app, Right, everything else is a representation of other work that you've done your transcripts, letters of recommendation, your extracurricular involvement, you're doing those things for other reasons, but you don't ever write a college essay for another purpose, right? You're writing it for the college essay. And I think that that puts a lot of pressure on on this. And so let's just speak really briefly about the nature of the college essay and why it's different from writing that students might be used to engaging with in class.
2: Yeah. Um... There are big differences. uh, A college essay is not your English literature paper. (laughs) Um, It it is, uh, in its best form, uh, I think, uh, a highly reflective um, and in most cases, not all cases, uh, more of a creative piece uh, than it is um, certainly an analytical piece. And a lot of high school students don't have any experience with reflective writing. Um, I think the Uh, The high school journaler (laughs) is a rare, rare find. And uh, reflective writing can feel very awkward for a lot of students. Um, Detail is also, I think, really important uh, for the college essay writing, thinking about the smaller elements that can help a story stand out. And that can also take some getting
1: used to. A different sort of perspective, right, than I think students are typically used to um, when they're, when they're writing, um, in any respect. And I think, I think you're right. It is quite different. It's also just the fact that it is so introspective, I think is really unusual. I would encourage you, if you're a student that's listening to this, or if you're a parent, maybe you can talk to your juniors about this. When was the last time that you wrote something about yourself? Mm -hmm. When did you actually sit down and whether it's pen to paper or typing on a keyboard? Write a story about something that happened in your life. So think about what the answer to that question is. And I think for most students that I engage with, at least, uh, it's many years ago. It might have been a middle school. Maybe it was an elementary school. um, But typically not something that shows up all that often in high school, unless you have a particular English teacher who encourages some form of, of personal narrative. How often do you see that students are engaging with that sort of reflective writing before they come in and and work with you
2: yeah um, I, I think it 's pretty pretty rare uh, for a student to have that experience and um, as I help them uh, think about the story that they might want to tell in their various essays, I find that some of them haven't even ever had to articulate in words in a conversation about why they do the things they do or um, what's the source of um, their motivation for pursuing something. And so I think even in conversation, <laughs> it can be a more rare thing.
1: That's right. The why is really huge. I, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because I think... I think that's that's really a clear challenge for students is trying to articulate why they they know they want to go to a particular school or they have a story that they want to share. But when you start getting past the what happened and into the why, I think that's where a lot of students get to be challenged. And as admission officers, that's where the interesting stuff is. That's that's where we get excited is is understanding that why and unpacking that why. So I I think that that's a really important thing. Now, let's talk just also about timeline. So we've established that this is a reflective piece of writing. It's probably pretty unusual for students. It's March right now, mm-hmm. middle of March. Yeah. And juniors are thinking about essay writing. I'm getting a lot of questions about essay writing. Where do you think the actual process of writing that essay starts? Yeah.
2: Um, I know that among our colleagues, there's kind of different... Um, places where they like to begin the process formally. Uh, I tend to not engage students in brainstorming for their main college essay until after junior year kind of comes to it's, yes. it's, it's end. Might still be in the junior year after finals are done. But uh, I think usually a student's time is better put on finishing the junior year strong, planning for summer, finishing up standardized testing and students who start their personal essay Basically at the start of the summer, still have plenty of time to write. And they collect um, more maturity, more vocabulary, um, potential experiences, knowing what their summer is going to be that might feed into that. So um, I think uh, the most ideal time to begin writing the essay is the start of the summer. The one exception to that is when a high school, uh, typically through an English class or maybe through a college guidance counseling office, might provide support. Support for students before summer starts. And yeah. uh, that's the the one exception where I will um, begin that process earlier. Though that right. essay often changes <laughs> over, over time.
1: <laughs> but there are also, there are members of our team who would say, I don't care what you're writing with your, your high school English teacher or your guidance counselor, we're gonna start over because <laughs> my guess is that we need something a little bit different. Um, I'm, I'm more in alignment with you. And sometimes I have to explain to, to parents. Parents will say, well, we wanna get started early. And I'll say, well, in this case, it doesn't actually help to get started early. You might be doing a ton of work that gets erased by an experience you have later on. Mm-hmm. And I don't really feel like you're losing time yeah. if you start the essay writing process after you've put junior year behind you. And I, mm-hmm. I'll usually usually look ahead to mid-summer, not quite late summer, because I don't want the personal essay tra- process to drag into the fall such that it disrupts the opportunity to do supplements. But as you and I were talking in advance of this, a lot of supplemental essay topics aren't even posted mm-hmm at the point at which students might be done with a personal essay if they start writing it early on in the spring. So you do have some time. And given that, let's get to sort of the central idea of what we want to talk about today. What can you do if you want to write a better essay? Are you just stuck with whatever your own instincts are about writing? Are you just, you know, tethered to whatever it is that you've done as far as reflective writing is concerned? Or can you improve your understanding of this type of project? Yeah. In a way that benefits your essay writing later on.
2: Um, yes, I definitely think uh, that you can. Good, because
1: otherwise <laughs> we would just stop the segment, move on to Q and A, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad that the answer is yes. We didn't plan that, folks. So good.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I think um, oftentimes um, a most frequent um, way for students to instinctually write the essay is a more chronological format. Um, A little bit more straightforward in the story that they're telling. And the final product of that can be a great essay, but it's not necessarily going to stand out a little different or bring something that is unusual when an admission officer is going through maybe 50 or even 60 of these in a given day. And so I think one of the things students can do is to begin thinking about how to shake up a more traditional essay storyline or flow. And sometimes it might be as simple as taking the third paragraph of what would be a chronological essay and flipping and maybe opening an essay with a more active point of the story um uh thinking about kind of brainstorming around central themes of an essay and how might you kind of creatively rearrange what your story is based mm-hmm. around a theme or even an object, I've had some really great brainstorming with students where they have found an original way to approach what they want to say, centering um, a a particular object uh, that provides inspiration for what they want to tell. So it takes a little bit of outside the box thinking um, and warming up to that uh, through open conversation, I think is a great place to begin.
1: Yeah. And you can't, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to say this definitively, but I'm going to because, it, you know, i, I that's me. Uh, you can't start an essay outside the box if you've never engaged outside the box before, yeah. right? You're not going to come in and say, I'm going to write this super creative essay if that doesn't feel natural to you. And so what I'm picking up on your suggestion here is try some stuff yeah. with respect to your own reflective writing that pushes your understanding of what writing ought to be in this space. Yeah. So- Take a look around your bedroom and find an object that has meaning to you Mm -hmm. and spend 30 minutes writing about it. And as you said, you were sort of, you were talking about this detail, right? Mm -hmm. Start with the details, start with some of the things that you notice about it, and then use that detail to expand a little bit more into reflective thought about who you are and what you want to say about that object, connect it to yourself. Maybe it's just a paragraph. Maybe it's two paragraphs. It's definitely not something you have to show anybody. Mm -hmm. But I think engaging with some unusual types of writing can be really, really helpful if you want to get familiar with with reflection. Mm -hmm. Are there other sort of writing exercises that you might suggest people take on?
2: Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind actually isn't a writing exercise, but it's a reading exercise. Mm -hmm. If you read things that Mm -hmm. are... um, A little bit more creative in their delivery, you will be perhaps a little bit more comfortable of what that could look like, what that outside the box space is. And so, finding high quality um, journalism, (laughs) I think, can be a, a boon for students to incorporate. And I think it's a great time for juniors to, you know, look at an Atlantic article or a New Yorker article or an economist article and kind of see how stories are told in perhaps a little bit more creative way.
1: Yeah. I think some of that long form journalism can be, it's more storytelling in many cases than it is reporting. So we're not talking about going to a newspaper and reading what happened in that day's news, but someone who's spent time reflecting on a particular story and has written about it yeah. And if, if things like the New Yorker, or the Atlantic feel like they're too dense to be accessible, they're not quite something that grab your interest. You can also find some really phenomenal sports writing out there. Um, you can find great stories. I've read this great article on Damian Lillard, which was not, will not surprise anybody who knows me, but it was, it was about some of the challenges he's been experiencing in his personal life lately and how that's affected him on the court. And it's really great to see how the author of that article weaves storytelling through what I perceive today to be regular events on the basketball court, but really gave some insight into who he is. So if you like sports, you can find some great sports journalism. You can read a lot of great stuff that is tangential to interests that you might have. Mm -hmm. And I was actually going to ask you this question. As we think about people who tend to be good essay writers, and think about all the students that you've worked with and those to whom it would seem to come naturally, Mm -hmm. what do you think are common factors or attributes among those students who are, quote, good essay writers?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, at the risk of being redundant, they're good reflectors. (laughs) Um, They are um, uh, good at being authentic in their voice and um, making connections between different experiences that they may have had. But um, reflection and authenticity.
1: I like that. I also think that, I often find, and I don't know if this is true for you, the students who have the most frictionless experience in the essay writing process are students who do a lot of reading, students who like books, students who have, when I ask them, what are your favorite books or what did you read last summer, they have an answer to that question. And so this is a a great segue to this idea of what can you do if you're thinking about your college essay, but you're a ninth grader or a 10th grader or a middle schooler, just read stuff, read Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, You were talking about making connections and it actually reminded me of the experience of doing impromptu speaking when I was in high school. And for impromptu, you would get three different things that are totally unrelated, like banana, light post, and Great Britain. And you'd have to figure out a way to connect those things through a speech and yourself. And the exercise of having to do that, of trying to make connections through these random objects and then make a speech on the spot about it was really really interesting. And I think that that, that finding of connections between random things is great practice for starting to find connections between things that occur in your life yeah. and what those things have to say about you as a student. Yeah. We're just about out of time, but Again, we're keeping it casual. We're not on a schedule for today. We've got a, a nice, flexible show. Are there other thoughts that you would want to share with, with students as they're thinking about writing? I might have a tip or two, but you're the guest on the show. So <laughs> anything that you want to add, anything you'd like to share on top of that?
2: Um, I think approaching the essay writing process, not with the prompt leading you. But instead, focusing on you and your experiences and the stories you want to tell is a better place to begin the writing mm-hmm. process. Um, when I begin the personal essay with students that I support, I say the prompts exist, but we're going to put them to the side. Let's just talk about you. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, for forty-five minutes, I just get them talking and. I'm taking notes and they're taking notes and exploring things that they're proud of. And usually some really beautiful themes emerge and the student walks out of that move, that meeting really excited. And then they turn to the prompts and figure out how those stories can connect. Uh, But I think um, the prompts can sometimes guide you down to a path of there's something expected here. And what admission officers expect is to get to know you. And Mm so Keeping that focus on you, particularly for the main essay. Um, supplemental essays, I think the prompts are more important. Um, the UC insight questions more important. But, I love uh, that.
1: No, no, I think that's great. That actually, it, it, I was going to give a different tip. But I like what you said there, and, and I will bring in a different one that was inspired by your idea, which is don't be in such a rush to get to the finish line when it comes to the essay. Don't be seeking an answer to this question. And I think that this is why the essay can sometimes be a challenge for students that are really talented in STEM fields who are used to writing a program and testing it and seeing that it works. It doesn't quite work that way with the essay. You have to be open-minded about continuing to iterate and develop this thing that is much more subjective than it is objective. Mm -hmm. So don't be in a hurry to say, is this done? Am I at the finish line? Have I written the right essay for me? Mm -hmm. And I think that open-mindedness about what it could be will lead you to, to better Opportunity. Bottom line read more, write more, practice, have conversations, right, Christine? Like that's what we're really going for here. This is an audio medium, so you can't just nod and smile.
2: You have oh, to say, yes. sorry.
1: Yes. Yes, yes Ian. Uh, which is a great reminder for our listeners that if you'd like to see us on camera, you can go and find us at the College Coach Facebook page and you can watch a video version of this, uh, in which Christine. Uh, laughs at me because I'm putting her on the spot in unexpected ways. Okay. Thanks, Christine, very much for coming on the show today. I hope it wasn't too painful.
2: Thank you for hosting, Ian, and having me. Bye. Happy
1: to. All right, folks, when we come back, we are going to do some listener Q&A. Maybe your question will be the subject of conversation. Don't go away.
3: What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to getting in a college coach conversation to submit a question for an upcoming listener Q and a segment, or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to getting at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to getting in a college coach conversation. If this is a, uh, the first time you're joining us for the segment today, or you're catching this on our Facebook channel, we're keeping it very casual today. Shannon, we're keeping it yeah. very casual today. So casual. nice and relaxed. Yeah, we've got some, uh, some listener questions we're going to go through here. Uh, and I'll just formally introduce you, Shannon. I know that most people will already know who you are if they're fans of the podcast, because you're everywhere. As you pointed out in one of our internal Hi. chats the other day, you're on all of our, all of our video meetings. I'm uh, very famous, Ian. You're, you're very famous. And you might have actually seen Shannon Vasconcelos in print media because she's being interviewed left and right because of her expertise with college finance. So Shannon, welcome to the show again.
3: Thank you, Ian. It's I great very to have much you. enjoy being here.
1: It's great to have you here. And we're just going to tackle some Q&A. We're going to bring the famous Shannon Vasconcelos to the radio show where she got her start. And we'll, we'll have some awesome questions for you. We've also got some questions that I'm going to answer. And hopefully that can, you know, hold up to the quality that you're establishing on the show. So it'll be
3: a challenge, Ian. We'll see. <laughs> show me what you got, Ian. I'm going
1: to have a hard time here. So let's start with an admissions-based question because I'm the host and I want to talk first. So do you have a question that I can answer?
3: I sure do. The first question for you comes in from Christine, not the Christine that we just talked to, different Christine. Uh, And she asked, how can you show a college a virtual demonstrated interest?
1: Good question. Very relevant question. Actually, just yesterday, uh, I went to the website for the University of Virginia, and I signed up for a virtual information session and tour, which will be on April 8th. A number of us are doing this because we want to see a little bit more about the school. We want to see how some of these virtual info sessions are different uh, or similar from each other. And if I were a student, this would be a great way for me not only to learn more about the institution, but also to demonstrate to the University of Virginia that I'm interested in the school. Because if you're going to go and register to spend an hour of time with a presenter from home, that's going to indicate to that college that you have some level of interest in the school. So this is great. I think it's actually great news, Shannon, because in the past, if you wanted to demonstrate a similar kind of interest to UVA, you'd have to get on a plane and go stay in a hotel overnight and go and actually visit campus. And because that is not so widely available during pandemic times, you have an opportunity to do it more remotely from your home. So I think that that's that's the first major difference over the last year that we've seen as compared to prior years with more normal student visits. Um, I
3: love that, actually, as someone concerned with college finance, the fact that in the past, it cost quite a lot of money to demonstrate interest to a college in that way. If you wanted to go to UVA, but you lived in, I almost said Washington, which would have made things confusing, depending on which Washington you're talking about, but you lived in California, you would have to fly across the country and spend all of that money on planting. And of course, not everyone was able to do that. So in this environment, again, one of the uh, you know, minor silver linings is that it does kind of even the playing field in that way for folks who have a lot of money and don't have a lot of money can equally, are equally able, uh, or at least close to it, demonstrate interest in an online manner in terms of virtual visits. So That's absolutely
1: that. right. That's absolutely right. And I think I think you can also demonstrate more interest to more schools because you can get yeah. more of these virtual visits lined up than you would be able to do in person. But that you also can't, set up virtual visits for hundred schools. That would be somewhat ridiculous, right? So it, it still allows you to pick the ones that you're most excited by, but also gives you a little bit more flexibility to demonstrate that. Um, I would just add the same old methods of communicating with a college admission officer who is your regional rep still apply here. If you have questions, you can reach out to a college to ask those questions. I actually encouraged one of my students to draft an email to students at some schools that he was interested in. You can usually email the admission office and say, hey, I've got some questions. Do you have any current students who are interns in your admission office that I could ask these questions to? And they'll say, yeah, here, you can email this kid. He's a biology major, he's a current junior and ask some of those questions. And that's a great way both to demonstrate interest and learn more about the school. And one of the things that you'll hear from me is always demonstrate interest in a way that has value to you in terms of learning more, not just demonstrating interest for its own sake, right? So easy way to open up some channels of communication, do some research, learn more about schools. All right, right, you ready for a finance? Go ahead. No, go ahead. I just wanted
3: to just clarify real quick, because I think people do get this misimpression that you need to demonstrate interest. So you should email the admissions officer, some question that you could easily find the answer to on their website that's right i I think that's that's often the impression but but i like what you're saying do this in a way that actually adds value to you in your search process ask a question you would really like to know the answer to that you can't easily find on the website right that's
1: exactly right um all right first question for you i'm going to try and decipher some of these finance terms i think i got it so this is from natalie Let's say the cost of attendance minus the EFC is $20,000 in need. How do I figure out what a college will provide in grants for the need portion, and then what the college provides in scholarships or merit toward tuition? Do colleges provide need-based grants and merit scholarships? Or if a school gives grant aid, is there nothing additional in merit that is granted? How do we find this out prior to applying and getting the award? So nine questions in there, Shannon. Let's see if you can yes. handle <laughs> Really I'll thorough. I like know. I like this question. This yes, is a great uh, one,
3: Natalie. It, it, it is a great one. Um, so Natalie prefaces the question with this, this formula, the cost of attendance minus the expected family contribution, let's say that equals $20,000 for this okay. family. Uh, and that is, uh, that's what's referred to as the family's need. And what that formula is, is the basic formula of the the financial aid process. Every school does this same thing. They take how much they cost, they subtract out what they think you should be able to come up with, and the difference is your need, and that is your maximum need-based aid eligibility. Um, but Natalie's question is getting at how does this need and the need-based aid interact with merit scholarships? Right. Um, and I think Natalie has the, the impression that That Natalie conveys, I think it's a little bit turned around. So I'd like her to flip her perception just slightly because she asks if a school gives grant aid, is there nothing additional in merit that is granted? And it does not work that way.
1: Um, Good news.
3: Good news. Correct. Yeah. So it's not uh, if you qualified for a ten thousand dollar grant or in, in Natalie, I'll use Natalie's scenario because that's the smart thing to do. You qualify for twenty thousand dollars in need based aid, you get a twenty thousand dollar grant. Does that mean that you are now excluded from getting the schools maybe fifty thousand dollar, you know, full tuition merit scholarship? No, absolutely okay. not. Good news. Um, Great. That is good news. Now I'll get to the, the less good news. Um, that So the your need-based aid does n- not typically affect your merit scholarships, but your merit scholarships do affect your need-based aid eligibility. So in mm-hmm. this example that Natalie gives where the student's need is, say, $20,000, um, they would be eligible for potentially $20,000 of need-based aid. But if the school has already awarded them, let's say, a $15,000 merit scholarship. And the merit scholarships do typically come first. Those come from the admissions office, who they've accepted you, they've identified you as a particularly uh, desirable student that they want to recruit. They're offering you a $15,000 merit scholarship. Then your file goes to the financial aid office, who does this basic calculation, determines you have $20,000 of need, but they say, oh, you needed $20,000, but we have already awarded you a $15,000 merit scholarship. Therefore, you are eligible for $5,000 in need-based aid. Okay. They count merit scholarships towards meeting your need. Um, so if the student is awarded a $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 merit scholarship, you now have no it erases the
1: need based aid eligibility exactly right and that seems that seems to make sense to me i think that where that creates a real problem for a family is if the efc that the college says a student or family has doesn't align with what the family's perception of that efc is right that's
3: that's exactly right yeah because okay. the they they cannot if you are awarded any federal student aid they, they legally cannot um, say that your merit scholarship went to cover your EFC and we'll still meet your full need with need-based aid, they actually legally cannot do that. Um, and so you're absolutely right. As long as a family actually feels like they can contribute their EFC, there's no problem. Um, but that is often not
1: the yeah, case. Yeah. I would, I just, a sub question, what percentage yes. of families would you say agree with the EFC? What percentage of families are like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we <laughs> zero can report.
3: Point 0.0. <laughs> okay,
1: great. That's what I thought. That was my instinct.
3: Almost nobody uh, believes that they can actually come up with, if, if, if a family is asked, how much can you contribute to college? It is always less than their EFC.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, and in terms of how you can figure this out in in advance, um, colleges do have net price calculators on their websites um, that are required to calculate or estimate for you need-based aid eligibility. So you can play around with net price calculators they are not required to estimate merit scholarship eligibility. So that is kind of a wild card in the equation at many schools. Uh, The best net price calculators do actually incorporate merit scholarships. So you could play out this whole scenario. Uh, At many schools, they do have very robust net price calculators. And when you see a calculator asking for grade point average or SAT scores, anything like that, that tells you they're incorporating merit scholarships. And so there are some schools that do provide a very good kind of all-encompassing, estimate up front. Uh, others do not. And it is a bit more of a guessing game. You know, you can assume it sounds like Natalie kind of, I assume she listens to the show quite she seems a bit. To get it, yeah. She gets it, I think. Um, and so she knows you can uh, maximize chances of merit scholarships by applying to schools where you stand out, where you're above average, but it is less predictable than the need-based aid where you can use a net price calculator. Having said that, Net price calculators currently um, are, do a decent job of predicting aid for, uh, you know, this um, this upcoming school year um, where they will start becoming less reliable is for the 23-24 school year because the government just passed legislation that is changing right. the financial aid, the federal financial aid calculations quite a bit. Those net price calculators may not be uh particularly accurate if you're wanting to kind of predict future years because things may be changing uh um just a bit. They're they're the best tools we have. They'll give you kind of ballpark. For most people, yeah. they'll still get you in the right ballpark, but um but we're we're in a, a weird time right now where they're they're less accurate than usual. Good to know. Yeah. All right, next question for you, Ian, is from Melisandre. And she asks, what are your thoughts on what has happened with the crazy amount of applications? And she gives Mm. us an example, 100,000 applicants to NYU, I think, this year. Uh, What's this all about? Is this due to no test scores, no fee to apply, how on earth will the admissions officers actually get through all of these applications?
1: That's a great question. You actually posted something um, yesterday morning that I thought was really interesting. And if I hadn't closed our group chat, I could pull it up and take a look at it. But it was indicating growth or change in application numbers at different types of institutions. Right. Was it, it was uh, what we saw was the most dramatic increase in application numbers tended to be at private and more selective colleges and universities. Am I remembering that right, Shannon?
3: Yes, and larger universities. I think, and I think larger those are the common denominators, private, selective, large. Um, yeah. public, less selective, and smaller schools um, did not see anywhere near those kinds of dramatic increases.
1: And so what I think that this reflects is, first of all, the test optional change and the effect that that had on how students perceived their chances of getting into schools was enormous. We saw some information from Boston University that said about 70% of their applicants in the ED round applied test optional, and about that same percentage of the admitted students were test optional, which is a really, really striking number for a school that hadn't been test optional previously. Uh, I think a lot of students took the opportunity to approach admission with a sense of greater confidence about getting into more selective schools, but also on the other side of the coin, some trepidation about the likelihood of certain outcomes working out in their favor, given all of the uncertainty that was surrounding the admission process. So I think when you combine the fact that students both thought, you know, I might have a chance at Harvard and Yale and Stanford this year if they're not looking at testing. Plus, you know, there are so many going to be so many apps. And I'm not sure if I'm going to get into my local UC or my local CSU. That's just inflating uh, application numbers everywhere. Honestly, we are still trying to figure out what the impact of this is going to be. We still don't have a full cycle yeah. to data to take a look at this. Um, we've seen some really funky things. I was talking with a colleague this morning who said that she had a student that was put on the that was deferred early from um from Chapman University I think it was she wrote a letter of continuing interest and was actually offered a spot in the class very soon after that so i think colleges are also in a position where they're saying oh my gosh we have so many applications which of these students are actually interested in our school right. versus those who you know might um, might just be using us as a safety in this particular circumstance so right now i think the uncertainty started with families has extended to colleges. You're going to see enormous amounts of use of the wait list. I think there are going to be some head scratching decisions. Um, colleges that have historically not relied on demonstrated interest to influence their decisions might find that they have less of a strength in being able to predict what the possible yield is going to be. So it's a really, really funky circumstance where we are occupying a new territory for decision-making, and we will have to wait and see how it all shakes out with these schools. Um, another really interesting stat that I that I saw today was the yield at schools that are typically the best yielders, like Stanford dropped really dramatically from 2019 to 2020 in the wake of the start of the pandemic. So Stanford typically yields about 82% of students that are admitted. That means eight out of 10 students are saying yes to Stanford when Stanford says yes to them. In 2020, that number was closer to, I think, 60%. So a pretty steep drop in the kids that are actually saying yes, even at the schools where we would imagine most students would want to still go. Um, So it's been really, really, really uh, difficult uh, to understand. Shannon, just as a quick follow-up, we got to go to a break, but how would this impact how financial aid offices are using their merit scholarships? Are they likely to be a little bit less generous at the front end, or are they sort of following the same policy they always would with those scholarships?
3: I think it's all up in the air because schools don't know what to do. Yeah. and so I think you might see schools experimenting and some schools may hold back a little bit. Some schools might be extra generous right up front to try and, and bring those yield numbers up, try and pull students in. Um, one thing we are absolutely recommending to families, you know, as we do every year, But going back and negotiating, not taking a school's first offer, we saw it play out last year when schools were very worried about their enrollment being extra generous, extra willing to negotiate. And I think the same thing may play out this year.
1: Awesome. So uh, we don't know. (laughs) Things are are wild out there. (laughs) Wild Um, West. Yeah. And, and I think that it's just going to draw the process a little bit longer. So we'll have more information in a couple of months. And, and for every individual student, you'll have more information, I think, uh, by May, June uh, as well. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We've got more listener questions to power through. So don't go away. We'll be here when you get back.
3: What's happening on the Voice America
0: Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at T R N. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help.
1: College Coach conversation. We've got a short final segment because we talked so much in the first two segments. So I'm going to do a quick preview of next week's episode before uh, we jump back into our Q&A. We're keeping it super casual this week. Next week, things are going to get a little more professional because Beth is going to be talking about preparing for an undergrad degree in business and how to develop leadership in your extracurricular profile. So not so casual. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about starting the activity list for the common app. And Shannon is going to be back next week because she is on the show every week <laughs> for a legislative update. And she alluded to some changes to the need-based formula in an earlier question in the last segment. So Shannon, you'll be back to talk all about that stuff.
3: And I will okay. be all business next
1: week. All business. That's right. No fun whatsoever. No fun at all. <laughs> okay.
3: Getting it Great. out of my system now, Ian.
1: That's right. Well, let's let's have some fun with this. Next question, this comes from Jean. Uh, it's actually, it looks like actually kind of a serious question, so we, we will take this seriously. Um, what kind of financial aid can my child get based on the fact that I'm a single parent? Great question.
3: Yeah, and there is no, um, you know, sort of special pot of money for um, single parents or their children. Um, I will say that the... You will naturally qualify potentially for more financial aid based on the fact that you will be applying for aid at most colleges with one income instead of two incomes. If it was a two-parent family, they'd be looking at you know double the income right. in some cases. Uh, whereas applying as a single parent, a one-parent household will only be showing one parent's income. You will naturally qualify for more financial aid, unless, of course, that one income is very high. Right. Uh, you know, one income from could be higher than two incomes from somebody else. But um, you're naturally, Gene, going to qualify uh, likely for more financial aid because you're only looking at one income. And that is that most schools, I would say the exception is colleges that use the CSS profile. Um, hmm. Most colleges that require the profile form, in addition to the FAFSA, there are about 200 of them. They tend to be private schools, selective schools those colleges typically do ask for non-custodial parent information as well. So if there is a non-custodial parent in the picture, there's only one parent in your household, but if there is another parent out there in the picture that could potentially contribute to the student's college education, uh, profile schools want to know Uh, about it and know the financial information of that household and they will look at both households that is profile schools only colleges that just use the fafsa just look at the custodial household so they would just be looking at the one parent's income Um, if that parent were to marry or remarry the step parents information is also looked at Um, so i guess that's one piece of advice Jean. while your children are applying for financial aid going to college as a single parent Probably want to stay single <laughs> in most cases. Uh, wow. I know. I, I, don't, I don't
1: tend here. to give
3: love advice here on getting in a college coach conversation, but I'll just say that was something that I would see. You know, and it wasn't an uncommon occurrence where a student, when I worked in a financial aid office, a student would come in with a great financial aid package, qualified for tons of need-based aid, and then their custodial parent remarried. And it was, you know, double the household income. And all of a sudden for the next academic year, they lost a whole lot of financial aid eligibility. So
0: wow. that's
3: a bit of a bit of a Debbie Downer sort of uncupid like <laughs> relationship advice when it comes to financial aid. Follow the aid.
1: heart or follow the head. I don't know. That's I know, a I a tough know, decision. I
3: know. It's tough. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but nothing special in terms of, of your process. It's applying for financial aid as anyone else would. But at most schools, it's just the, the one income instead
1: of two. Great. Cool.
3: Okay. You got another one for me? I do, Ian. The next question for you is from John. And He John. says, in a recent podcast on – Early decision deferrals. You referenced Northwestern as a highly selective school from which a deferred applicant should probably not even try for a more competitive school. So I think he's referring to, you know, if you got deferred during the early decision process from Northwestern and thinking about your options, you know, in regular decision you might want to go less selective, not more selective. I I think that's the the advice he was referring to. Now, your advice may sound, maybe sound for a typical year. Still, this year is unusual for two reasons. First, colleges must account for gap students from last year's admitted class. Second, since testing is optional this year, highly selective colleges received more early decision, decision applicants possibly overwhelming the admissions staff uh, ability to make quick ED decisions. Um, if my son is deferred from Northwestern, perhaps this decision was simply random noise and a poor signal of his strength as a candidate, given his, this year's unique circumstances. So this is John's proposition.
1: And um, I'm glad I'm getting this question because yeah. I said this about Northwestern. This was something. You did said, oh
3: good. So, so, yeah, this so wasn't Beth and it wasn't you. Sally.
1: It was he me, and I'm getting called you out
3: on it, Ian. And yeah, so so what w- can defend your position?
1: I will um, defend my... my position. No, I, I okay. think I think the first thing I want to start with is this last question that or the last bit of the question where John says perhaps this was random noise and a poor signal of his strength as a candidate given this year's unique circumstances. I would say that when a decision comes back from a Northwestern, a similarly competitive school or a more competitive school, a decision to deny is not an indication of a student strength as a candidate period. There is just so much strength in the applicant pool that there are students who are being denied or turned away or deferred who are excellent, excellent students. And that's really important to keep in mind. Um, So it's not a commentary on the student, it's more a commentary on the different levers that are at work in this this process. We talked with the last admission-based question about the sense of uncertainty out there, and John is really getting to this. Um, I don't see... Any indication that the gap year students from last year are affecting the way that colleges are changing their enrollment numbers for this coming year. Most schools are saying we're going to have a larger freshman class, but we are not anticipating any effect on our incoming student population for the fall of 2021. And that's something that I think we've heard again and again. We very rarely have heard any indication from schools that they are admitting fewer students fewer students because of those gap years that students took during the pandemic. So I think that that's really important to to push out at least as far as uh, information is showing us. Um, Generally, what I'm speaking to when I talk about Northwestern, and we should take a step back and say, when you get a deferred decision from a school, your app list really probably shouldn't change at all. Your app list is something that you develop before you start to hear back from schools and it should be balanced. It should have a strategic approach to it and it should include colleges you're interested in. And what I think is the hardest thing for students and families to do is after they get that first piece of information from one school, an N of one, not to question how they went through that process of choosing that list, right? Getting a defer from Northwestern could mean something about your strength as a candidate, but more likely, It just means that Northwestern didn't have room for you in that particular class. And the rest of your list, if it was balanced before, is still balanced now. I think where I would... think that's a big if. That's that's a big if. It needs to be balanced, right? But I think the idea that you can say, all right, I didn't get into Northwestern, it's really selective. So I'm now going to look at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. I don't think that that's a good idea. Um, And I think that... This comes from my experience and is admittedly a smaller lens uh, to look at, but there are very, very rare cases where students that are getting into a school that is more selective than a Northwestern, which is already in the top 25 in terms of selectivity, would not also get into a school that is as selective as Northwestern. and That just has to do with the caliber of students that are admitted among those top, top schools. In this year, testing is not a part of that conversation for a lot of students, which is fine. But I think that there's a perception around the most selective institutions that numbers really drive the process. When numbers are more of a seat at the table and the locus of the decision happens around extracurricular involvements and essays and letters of rec, which if you saw the letters of rec that came through some of those schools, you would see just how sterling those candidates are. They are really, really remarkable in lots of different circumstances. So um, in general, there are exceptions to every rule. I have had students that were denied from Vanderbilt, but got into Stanford, but by and large, It would tend to be the case that if you get deferred from a Northwestern, you're not going to go and apply to a more selective institution in the regular round and find success. But John, if that does happen for your son, please write us in. I would be happy to be proven wrong in this case, and we will celebrate your son's success on a future episode of Getting In. But thank you very much for the question. Shannon, I'm getting pinged that we have like 30 seconds left, and they're just going to cut the mic. They're going to bang the (laughs) gong. We're out of here but I want to They've thank had you for
3: enough of our fun. For today. Enough. They're done with us.
1: It just flies by. I got to do more of this Q and a stuff. I love it. Uh, thank you for coming. I know you're going to be on the show again next week. Yes. Bring that talent, bring that fame. We'd love to have you on the show.
3: Thank you. I will see y'all next week.
1: That will be great. And everyone, we hope we see you next week. It'll be another great show. Until then, enjoy spring break whenever it occurs, and we will look forward to seeing you again on an episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Take care.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.